Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Thanks, Steph. I, I was just thinking earlier in this week about uh, the first Easter that I enjoyed having become a Christian. It was a very special day. I can still remember it. That was uh, when I was 18, so it was a while back. But is this anybody's first Easter? That you know, you've become a Christian, and this is the first time you've, you're doing an Easter day. Just interested to know. Yeah, one at the back. Great. Um, yeah, wonderful. And who can remember the first Easter you had after you became a Christian? Did anything special? We 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 um, were a group of teenagers. We. We did a sleepover at a Methodist church hall. We, we had a, um, an adult come in to sort of do some meditations with us and uh, to help us uh, in worship and Bible studies and things. And then the next morning we got up really early and we went up to the Great Park in Windsor and watched the sun rise, uh, which is almost quite a thing when you're a teenager to get up that early. But we were excited about it. Uh, we, we just, uh, a number of us had become Christians and it was a very special day, uh, and, and most special because one of the girls in the group became a Christian um, during the evening before. So her first Easter Sunday was in the Great Park watching the sun come up. Fantastic. This is a special day, isn't it? And um, some years ago, um, my wife Kathy and I visited Vienna for a short break, uh, which was really lovely. But before we went, we wanted to sort of get into it and kind of get a feel of what Vienna was like. And uh, we decided we would watch a video of an old black and white classic film that was made in 1949. And uh, I didn't go to the, the, the cinema to watch it in 1949, but it was one of those films that came out. It was a classic. It starred Orson Welles. It was set in post-war Vienna. Graham Greene wrote the original book, and the name of the film is The Third Man. Uh, so if you know the film, how many of you know that film? It's not a Marvel film, so maybe one or two of you kind of don't know it. But it's a classic film. So in the film, I'll tell you the story, because you're not going to watch it anyway. Um, so Holly Martins is one of the main characters, and he visits his school friend Harry Lime uh, in Vienna. And when he arrives, Harry Lime's apartment is empty, and Martins is told by the porter that Harry Lyme had died the previous Thursday. He was knocked down by a vehicle. Well, the story goes on, and as it unfolds, Martins becomes more and more suspicious about his friend's sudden death, and he begins to investigate. And about two-thirds of the way through the film, Martin is returning to his home hotel late one night, and he realizes that somebody's watching him from across the street. And a streetlight suddenly goes on, and he thinks he sees his friend, Harry Lyme. And he chases him through the streets, but Lyme disappears without a trace. Martins is left confused. He's not sure whether he's imagined this or whether it was the effect of the alcohol he'd been drinking earlier in the evening. Is his friend dead or is his friend alive? And it was that kind of... Uh, and the story goes on. I won't tell you the rest of it, probably because I can't remember the end of it now. But, um, but it's, it's that sort of confusion that must have been in the minds of the disciples as well when they heard these stories about Jesus being raised from the dead. Is he alive? Is he dead? We're not sure. Um, it reminded me that film of something that happened at a similar time. Um, I conducted a funeral for a homeless man who... Uh, was well known in the area of, in Wimbledon. He used to be a pastor there. And uh, this homeless man had died. He'd been ill for some time. 
And we had a funeral um, early one morning, and it was an interesting funeral. Lots of homeless people turned up to say goodbye to their friend. And I didn't know him personally, but I, I knew enough about him and heard enough about him to know that I knew him by sight. And so I conducted this funeral. He was a well-known character on the streets of Wimbledon. And then a few months later, I was walking um, up to the shops. I was going out at lunchtime to get some sandwiches from Tesco's. And uh, as I got up to Tesco's, there was a guy sitting on the, the wall uh, across a, a crowded pavement. I spotted this guy, and uh, he's drinking uh, a can of lager. And I thought, oh, this is the guy uh, whose funeral I did a few weeks ago. Um, and I was a bit confused temporarily, uh, and I thought, you know, he's looking really well for somebody that died a few months ago. Um, and then my, uh, kind of my brain caught up and realised that I couldn't possibly have been the same guy, that must have been somebody else in that coffin, and I thought it was him. Um, and there's this confusion in my mind. And, and I, I can imagine that the disciples were feeling a similar kind of confusion when it came to Easter Sunday morning. There were these unconfirmed reports to say that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. The detail tales were sketchy. The news was uh, difficult to take in. Uh, there was not a shadow of a doubt in anybody's mind that Jesus had actually died on that cross. It was a very public execution. I mean, everybody in Jerusalem knew about this execution. Uh, everybody uh, had watched through the streets as he'd gone through the streets to that crucifixion. The news was all around the city. Everybody knew that Jesus had definitely died. And yet there was these, these rumors going around that he'd now risen from the dead. So what was going on? And until the disciples saw Jesus for themselves, they must have uh, wondered if these first witnesses had just imagined this. Was it some kind of vision? Was it some kind of hallucination? I think to us it, it sounds extraordinary, doesn't it, that somebody physically could rise from the dead. Uh, many would say, you know, when you're dead, you're dead. Uh, there's nothing beyond the grave. But according to the Bible... There is this possibility of eternal life for those who put their faith in Jesus. And I'm going to today want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. Because this is the earliest written evidence of Jesus' resurrection. It was written around 54 to 57 AD, uh, before any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were written. And Paul sets out, his proof for an actual physical resurrection. And he went on to say why that belief was so important. So this is just around 20 years or so after the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and there were still many first-hand witnesses alive. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The resurrection of Jesus is the bedrock of the Christian faith. We've been singing about it this morning and thinking about it. 
If it is false, then everything that Christians believe just collapses in a heap, like a, the proverbial pack of cards. There's a writer called Lee Strobel who was an atheist, but he examined the evidence of the resurrection, and he said, the resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' claim to deity. If he didn't rise from the dead, he clearly isn't God. So that's why it's so important to establish the truth of the resurrection. Paul says in verse 3, for I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now these words received and passed on were technical words used by the rabbis when they were passing on oral traditions in a fixed form. So what follows in verses 3 to 8 is probably an early Christian oral tradition. Paul is linking himself then with the earliest traditions about Jesus, these traditions that were passed on uh, by word of mouth. He wasn't an apostle at the time of Jesus' death and his resurrection, but he became a Christian uh, about a couple of years after the resurrection. And in Acts 9, 26 to 28, we, re- we read there that he arrived in Jerusalem and spent time with the apostles. So scholars believe that he wanted to get as many first-hand accounts of Jesus' teaching and the resurrection as he could during that time. And almost certainly in that time, he passed on that information as first-hand information to the Corinthian church. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Gordon Fee states that most scholars consider these verses are an expression of a very early Christian creed, which Paul incorporates into his letter. So the creed would have been memorized by early disciples alongside other creeds that gave them the doctrines of the faith. So this creed was in use within a few years of Jesus' resurrection. And so this particular passage is an important primary source proving that the earliest disciples were convinced that Jesus physically rose from the dead. But could the early disciples have been mistaken? I'm sure, like me, many of you will have studied these different theories about the resurrection. I remember at school we studied the swoon theory, um, which was the idea that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. Uh, He just fainted, he lost consciousness, and he recovered in the tomb And then uh, on the third day, he recovered enough to break out of the tomb. Uh, It's uh, one of those theories which, you know, at the time at school, you kind of learn and you've got to regurgitate it for your exams. But it's such a strange theory, isn't it? The idea that somebody that was almost, you know, almost dead could recover uh, in that time frame. You know, the the prisoners often didn't survive the floggings that they were given before the crucifixion crucifixion, yet alone the actual crucifixion. They, they were not going to be alive at the end of that time. Soldiers knew how to put people to death. That's, that was their job. They were doing it every day. They knew when people were dead. And so the idea that this person could have fainted and then you put them in a, an airless tomb for two or three days, no food or water, and then find the strength to actually move a massive rock and to break free, it seems incredible as an idea. Some people have suggested uh, that the disciples stole the body. If you look at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, I think it's verse 11 onwards, there's this whole section there about the authorities uh, fearing that the disciples might steal the body and they put an extra guard on the tomb. 
And, uh, and then when Jesus' body disappears and they, they can't work out what to do, they say, well, let, let's, let's generate that story. Let's, let's get that story out there that the disciples stole the body. Uh, uh, they just didn't want that uh, idea that Jesus could rise from the dead to get out there. Uh, and so they're, they're trying to create that story. Um, that's, that was another theory that went around. Suppose, let's suppose for a moment that Jesus hadn't physically been raised from the dead, that the disciples had made it up, that they had stolen their body, the body of Jesus. It would mean that millions of people throughout generations have believed an elaborate hoax. It would mean that millions had spent millions of pounds in pursuit of the faith that this hoax started. It would mean that millions of lives have been impacted by this elaborate hoax. It would mean that Jesus' first disciples were prepared to die for something they knew just wasn't true. And what kind of con trick could affect the course of history so profoundly? What kind of con man would have the intelligence or the foresight or the selflessness to deliberately create something which wouldn't benefit him materially? What kind of con man creates a hoax and then dies for it? And what kind of con man would accurately be able to predict the nature of his death, how long he would be dead, and when he would rise from the dead. It would be a pretty amazing con trick. Uh, and it's something that's fooled people, apparently, for centuries. The Bible scholar Wilbur Smith remarked about Jesus when he said that he himself would rise again from the dead the third day after he was crucified. He was saying something that only a fool would dare to say, unless he was sure that he was going to rise. No founder of any world religion known to men ever dared say such a thing like that. Jesus had told the disciples he would rise again after his death. They forgot about it. They weren't sure they really took it in. But if he failed to keep that promise, that would expose him as a fraud. There is one argument that's, that's gone around in recent years and may have some credibility. And the argument is this, that were the resurrection appearances just visions? That's been put out there a, a number of times in recent years. This is the idea that Jesus appeared to the disciple in, disciples in some kind of vision, uh, some sort of spiritual experience. It's appealing because... Uh, it, it's difficult to take in the idea of a physical re resurrection. And so this spiritual idea doesn't trample over people's faith. It retains something of the mystery of the resurrection. This idea of the spiritual resurrection has been put forward by different people. Uh, the idea that the resurrection of the spirit in the hearts of the believers, if you like. So were the disciples hallucinating? In his book, Glory of the Christ, uh, Peter Lewis dismisses this theory. He says, look, 500 people saw Jesus at the same time. This is what Paul says in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Despite the fact that Jesus has spoken of his death and resurrection, they weren't actually expecting it. They weren't psychologically geared up for it. Hallucinations, Michael Green says, tend to be allied with wish fulfillment. But there's none of that here. They tend to happen to particular types of people. No one type here. They tend to recur. This, these appearances, these ideas, if it was a spiritual reappearance, they ended after 40 days, never came back again. 
Is it possible that this was what the disciples were experiencing? Some sort of vision. But he didn't appear in a static, shimmering haze for people to watch. I've heard of of other uh, visions that people have seen, and whatever you might think of those religious experiences, but they all tend to be just static in one place. But Jesus moved around. He spoke to people. He engaged in conversations. He walked with a, a couple on the road to Emmaus. He broke bread with them. Uh, he shared the scriptures with them. He was physically present with people. Mary hugged him. He invited Thomas to put his fingers in the nail wounds in his hands and then into his, his, his side. He ate fish with the disciples. Uh, visions and hallucinations don't do those things. Uh, the risen Jesus wasn't this static vision at all. He was a physical reality. Uh, he was there. There was something different about his resurrection body, but he was there physically. He could appear in rooms unexpectedly. He could suddenly move from one place to another. There were different properties about his body, but it was a physical body. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, he says, when Jesus returns, we will be physically resurrected. He insists that we've got to get away from this Greek philosophical idea of a disembodied soul or spirit which exists for eternity. The Greeks, he said, felt that the body was flawed and therefore not suitable for spiritual existence. So spirit and matter were seen as incompatible. And in the Western world, we've swallowed this dualistic view, but it just wasn't there in Jewish thinking. During this life, our bodies are temporary but we will be given permanent bodies when Jesus returns. So we have this hangover from the Greek thinking that hinders us in believing that Jesus could be physically resurrected. We find it easier to think in terms of some sort of spirit, ghost, apparition, because in our Western mindset, we've accepted the idea of a separation of the body and the soul, or the body and the spirit. But that's just not biblical. It's not a biblical concept. So did Jesus rise physically? Absolutely, I believe that. His resurrection body was a prototype. He, he, he physically rose from the dead. And we will physically rise from the dead if we put our faith in him and inhabit a similar resurrection body which is equipped for all eternity. Those resurrection bodies aren't going to wear out and they're not going to grow old. It's great, isn't it? Good news. So for me, it's no shadow of a doubt that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And if he didn't, then our faith is worthless. We were singing about that, weren't we, earlier on. And Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. He knew that resurrection was absolutely central, central and essential to the Christian faith. He says, no, if, it doesn't, if it didn't happen, then we're not forgiven. If it didn't happen, then we don't have eternal life. And in verse 19, he says, look, we're to be pitied more than all men. But he goes on to say, with great certainty, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And he experienced the risen Christ when he met with him in that Damascus experience. Another theologian, R.C. Sproul, says, the claim of the resurrection is vital to Christianity. If Christ has been raised from the dead by God, then he has the credentials and the certification that no other religious leader possesses. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Moses is dead. Confucius is dead. But according to Christianity, Christ is alive. 
This is a personal story that Lee Strobel tells about you know, when he was an atheist. He went to listen to a, a guy called Dr. William Craig. Uh, he said, the first time I saw Dr. William Craig in action, I was seated behind him as he defended Christianity before a crowd of nearly 8,000 in a debate with an atheist. I marveled as Craig politely but powerfully built the case for Christianity while simultaneously dismantling the arguments for atheism. In the end, it was no contest. Among those who had entered the auditorium that evening as avowed atheists, agnostics, or skeptics, an overwhelming 82% concluded that the case for Christianity had been the most compelling. 47 people entered as non-believers and exited as Christians. Craig's arguments for the faith were that persuasive, especially compared with the paucity of evidence for atheism. Incidentally, nobody became an atheist that night. For those who are genuinely struggling to believe that Jesus really physically rose from the dead, I'd like to recommend uh, this website coming onto the screen, I think, www.yjesus.com. There's lots of information on there about Jesus and who he was and his teaching, but there's a section on the resurrection. It goes into quite a lot of detail there. So if you're genuinely struggling to get your head around the idea that Jesus could have possibly risen from the dead, go there, look at that, and examine the evidence. And if you accept that Jesus must have risen from the, de- from the dead, but you're not sure about the implications for your own life, I want to encourage you, as Steph mentioned earlier, we have an Alpha course, and uh, people have found that so helpful. Many hundreds of thousands of people now around the world have done Alpha courses. It's an introduction to Christianity. It helps you to go step by step to understand what Jesus has done for you. And so many people have uh, found that their, their faith has come alive through doing an Alpha course. It's starting on the 16th of May, and the details are up there on the screen. I want to just end there. I'm going to hand over to Steph in a moment, but let's just pray together and uh, let's continue after that with a song of worship as well. Lord, thank you so much for this extraordinary story. It's, it's happened so long ago and yet still impacts the whole world in such a dramatic way. And Lord, it's uh, changed and transformed so many people's lives. We thank you, Lord, that the evidence is there for the resurrection. Uh, and we don't have to just sort of leave our brains at the door when we, when we come into church. Lord, we can actually engage with uh, things like this in a real and intellectual way. And thank you, Lord, that when people have had the courage to examine the evidence and have the courage to really read through the scriptures, had the courage to think about it deeply, Uh, they've concluded that Jesus must have risen physically from the dead. We thank you, Lord. This is a day of celebration because the resurrection is right at the heart of everything we believe and understand to be true. Lord, if Jesus, Jesus, if you're not risen from the dead, then we have no good news to share. And we thank you that we have enormous, wonderful good news to share because you really did rise from the dead. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 Amen.